You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you want to open your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 96. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, the title of today's message is Seven Qualities of a Worshipper. All right? Seven Qualities of a Worshipper. And let me just kind of tell you why this is so impactful to my own heart. Uh, You know, in 2005, I was graduating high school. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I was not thinking ministry. I was not thinking worship ministry. Uh, I was around it. I was leading worship in some youth groups and different things like that, but didn't think that that's what I would give my life to, what God would call me to. And in 05, I went to Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, man, for the first time, I think I was impacted by vertical, high-impact, life-altering, life-changing worship that looked not at the things of this world, but had its eyes locked and focused on the center of the universe, Jesus Christ. And as that started to impact my life, as that started to burn in my heart, God took creativity and songwriting and music and some of the things that I thought were pretty cool, and he set those things in the back seat, and he started to give me a desire for the local church and for God's people to understand biblically the kind of worship that he is seeking. And uh, in John 4, 24, that's kind of the verse that goes with our second pillar as a church, uh, that we are gonna be unashamed in our adoration to Jesus. You know, that verse says that God is spirit and he's looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And what God started to do in my own life is was like, man, we're supposed to be followers of God. We're supposed to be disciples of God. But if he is scouring the earth right now, looking for a specific kind of worshiper, then man, our churches, our local churches need to be producing the kind of passionate, contagious worshipers that God so desires, okay? And as God started to birth that in my heart, he led me up here. And uh, man, I just like, look back over the nine years, I'm so grateful for the way that God has built and is building worshipers here in this church, including myself. And uh, aren't you just thankful that we could gather together and effortlessly cry out to God and know that he comes and down in our midst. Amen. And uh, Psalm 96, let me kind of give you an introduction to this great passage. It's my favorite psalm in all of the Bible. God started impressing it on my heart like my first year of college, never preached it. Um, except for a couple weeks ago in St. Joe, I had the opportunity to do it, and the Lord kind of has been affirming, bringing it to you this morning. Uh, But Psalm 96 contains 13 verses that were taken and modified from David's song in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, all right? In 1 Chronicles 16, you may remember uh, that story, but the Ark of the Covenant is brought by the, Jeru- in, by the Israelites into Jerusalem, right? And everybody's excited that the presence of God, which was contained in the Ark of the Covenant, it was being brought into their midst. And amidst that celebration, David lets out this spontaneous praise, this song of thanksgiving, this expression from his heart uh, of thanks, and it was recorded down in 23 verses. Well, at some point, all right, they took 16 of those 23 verses and they put them in, you know, what was the modern day hymn book for the Israelite people. Uh, That's what the Psalms are. These are actually songs and poems and things that were sung and expressed in the house of God by the Israelite people, okay? So Psalm 96, 13 of those verses, you'll find the exact 
uh, quotes in 1 Chronicles 16 because that was David's original prayer and it was put down for us in Psalm 96 today. Uh, Psalm 96 is both a beautiful mix of worship to God and mission to the nations. We're gonna see that this morning as we kind of dig apart this incredible Psalm. Uh, But not only that, uh, it's prophetic in nature. Uh, See, it looked ahead to the days whenever Gentiles would be invited into the song that is going around all the universe. That's the days that we're living in now because of Jesus Christ. You and I have been invited into the place where we can worship the God of the universe. That's an awesome thing. But it continues to be prophetic in nature because it looks ahead to the ultimate rule and reign of Christ when Jesus will return and when forever all of those who have placed their hope and faith in Christ will be able to worship God in the splendor of his majesty for all of eternity. We look ahead to those days. We sang about those days this morning. Uh, Those are great days that will come. And so uh, as we dig into Psalm 96, my desire, my prayer is that you would have some tangible things that you can walk out of here with today and apply directly to your lifestyle of worship to God. Okay, we've all been created to worship Jesus brings us back into a right standing with the God of the universe so that we can get our worship right. And uh, my prayer is that even now, he would be making us into the kind of worshipers that he is seeking. Are you with me on that? Let's go, all right? Psalm 96, the first point this morning is this. Worshipers have a song in their hearts. Worshipers have a song in their hearts. I already lost some of the people in the room because you're like, man, I do not sing and that is not my thing and I just come to church so that the people on stage can do the singing for me. Uh, Let's read what David says in Psalm 96 starting in verse one, all right? He says this, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And then he goes on and he says, sing to the Lord all the earth. And then one more time for us sheep that can't seem to get that through our heads. He says, sing to the Lord and bless his name. All right, three times in one and a half verses, we see the command from David to sing. I call it a command because David didn't say, man, if you're having a really great day, why don't you sing to the Lord? Man, if, you're, if, if, if things are going really well, maybe you could sing to the Lord. No, David three times with boldness says, sing to the Lord. There's a lot of different commands in scripture. I think the most, uh, the greatest command, the most repeated command in scripture is fear not, but very close behind fear not is the command to sing to the Lord. Listen, uh, I did some research. Uh, the command to sing appears 70 times throughout 56 verses in the book of Psalms, 70 times in 56 verses in the book of Psalms. The command to sing appears 119 times over 102 verses in the entire Bible. And most of those 119 verses have something to do with you and I singing to the Lord. I know that one of them doesn't have anything to do with you and I singing. Zephaniah 3.17 says that whenever we get into the presence of God someday, whenever God's people are in his midst, that he, the God of the universe, will rejoice over us with loud singing. I don't, I don't know what concerts you've been to. I don't know what your favorite style is, but man, I'm waiting for the day when the God of the universe sings a melody over my life. Like that is just gonna blow our minds. There's gonna be no other sound like it in all of the earth. But here's what it tells me. With all those commands to sing, with the fact that God expresses his love for us through singing, song and expression in song and melody and lyric, all of it is so close to the heart of the God 
of the universe. And it's a way that we express ourselves in worship. David, uh, oh, I'm sorry, um, and he gives, us, he gives us three ways this morning from those first one and a half verses of how we are to express ourselves in song to the Lord. Let's look at it. He says, number one, we sing to the Lord a new song, all right? See, I think, we, I think we have a great blend of music here at Harvest. You saw it this morning. We started with a hymn, and then we sang some songs that were maybe familiar. That hymn was actually a new song to a lot of you. Uh, so we sang a new song. We sang a hymn. We sang some familiar songs. We sang some older songs, Lord, I Need You, and some newer songs, Oh, Praise the Name. So we have a blend, uh, but we're never going to be a church, okay, that gets stuck in a certain style of music or a certain genre of music. And we're never gonna be a church that only seeks to sing old songs. I love old songs and I know you love old songs and a lot of those old songs come up, but there's just something beautiful and fresh about singing a new song to the Lord. Don't you love whenever you're kind of going through a trial or you're going through a season, you can't really express yourself the way that you want to to God, right? And then you find yourself in the car and you hear this new song on the radio and it, it's, like, it's like it was written for you. It says exactly what you've been trying to say to God in a way better way than you could have come up with and God puts that song in your heart and on your lips and then you express yourself to the God of the universe. Aren't you thankful for songwriters and worship leaders that can craft and write new songs like that for the church to sing? I know I am. And uh, it's so important. New songs put the wonder of God in our hearts and new expressions on our lips, okay? Uh, another way to think about a, a new song, I think, is just a fresh expression of the heart. You may not find yourself singing very often. Maybe when you're in your car, you try to hum a melody and it just is not super great. <laughs> uh, but surely the words that are coming from your heart, maybe uh, it's just the ability to express yourself in a new and fresh way to God that's the important thing. That's what we're zeroing in on here this morning. Matthew Henry, he's a theologian. He says this, he defines a new song as the product of new affections clothed in new expressions, okay? New, new affections clothed in new expressions. We find something out about our great God. We find we're overwhelmed by his goodness and his love. And so we start to express ourselves based on what we've experienced from God, okay? So whoever you are, whatever your gifting or ability is this morning, the psalmist wants the follower of God to know that you should continually be overwhelmed by God expressing yourself accordingly. We gotta get that right as worshipers of Jesus. The second thing he tells us that we should sing to the Lord all the earth, okay? Uh, th this was the Jewish song of praise, longing for the day when the Gentiles would be invited in to this song of praise. The fulfillment of that through Jesus Christ uh, should just ignite a song of praise in your heart here this morning. The fact that you have been invited in by the blood of the lamb to worship a saving God. And then finally, he says, sing to the Lord and bless his name. This is where we get the vertical mentality uh, that we talk about so often here at our church. Um, you know, do you realize that when we sing, we're blessing the God of the universe? It's close to his heart. And yet we live in such a consumeristic culture, right? Like we come to church often based on uh, getting what we desire, getting what we want, getting what we need. We say, oh, I go to this church. The music blesses me so much. It's just such a blessing to my soul. Uh, I, I, you know, special music was a big thing like in my church growing up. 
I was at this small church, I remember in seventh grade, and uh, I played the saxophone for special music, all right? So there I was behind my music stand, people need the Lord. <laughs> Let out a squeaky note and keep going. Like, <laughs> I, was God getting the blessing in that? Yeah, if my heart was right, sure, like God was getting a blessing. Was I getting a blessing? Absolutely, because I wanted to play my saxophone in church. Were my parents getting a blessing? You better believe it. My parents wanted me to play that saxophone in church for God, <laughs> okay? And so you see, though, like a lot of that, sometimes that mentality, it's, it's more about the blessing that we get as people and maybe less about the blessing that we're giving to God all the time. We're trying to be intentional when we come to church to not get the focus on the gifts of people, on the gifts of the people on the platform or the people in the seats, our main focus is, has nothing to do with us. The focus of church has to do with the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. And the beautiful thing is this, often we do get blessed in the process, but when you and I receive a blessing, it's just more to give back to him because he rightfully owns it anyways, amen? Church is for the glory of God. And so when we gather, we sing, not for our own glory, but to bless the name of Jesus. Let's keep going. Number two, worshipers have a message to declare. Worshipers have a message to declare. Psalm 96, starting in the second part of two, it says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples. So what's the message that you and I have to declare here this morning as worshipers? It's the message of the gospel, right? The fact that Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin and all who repent and believe can and will be saved. This is what David's saying. He's passionately commanding, hey, the one thing you should be doing besides worshiping me vertically is telling lost people about me. And he gives us three ways to declare it. The first one, uh, he says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of the hope that we have in salvation day after day. Uh, what are the things that we often tell about day after day? I, I, can, I can tell about my busyness day after day. Hey, how you doing? Oh man, just super busy right now, right? We do that all the time. We tell about our busyness. We tell about our family. We tell about our children. We tell about our vacation. Are you telling about the hope of the salvation that you have day after day? I was super convicted by this uh, this week and God's like pressing it in on my heart. I went somewhere and I was kind of doing my thing, doing my business, uh, not real focused on the people that were around me. And uh, I, I bump into a guy that I know and he sees me and he's like, hey man, how you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm good, uh, about to walk away. And I'm like, how are you doing? And he's like, man, I, and, and we're in this room, this quiet room where a lot of people can hear us. And he's like, man, I am so great. He's like, God has been so good to me and my family. I'm about to step into a new season at work. And I just got back from another country and we got to baptize six people. And I got to share the gospel with all these people. And I'm like, well, praise the Lord, man. And I'm like, this guy does not care about the mundane things in his day. His greatest thing that day was just simply to declare the salvation of God when he was asked how he's doing. He didn't care who was asking him. He didn't care who was in the room. He was bold about the salvation that he saw. 
You know, uh, Edward Hayes, is a, he's a, a leader in our church. He does compassion and missions and all this stuff. He just got back from Hungary. He was there for two weeks with his family. Lots of exciting stuff happening there. A church going to be planted in Budapest, hopefully, in the next couple years. And, and just God is on the move there. Well, Edward comes back after being away two weeks with his family. And I got with him. And I said, hey, man, tell me, the, tell me what your favorite thing was uh, from the two weeks you were away with your family. He didn't say the food. He definitely didn't say the burgers because Hungry's got some nasty burgers. Uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he didn't say the sightseeing. He didn't say the time with his family. You know what he said? He said, seeing a soul being saved. All right. That was his favorite thing about two weeks away with his family, seeing a soul being saved. Are you quick and are you ready to tell of the salvation of our God day after day? And then David says this. Uh, declare his glory among the nations. Set that word nations aside for a second. The first time I heard Psalm 96, uh, I heard it said like this, declare his glory among the heathens, okay? Heathens is not the most endearing term. You're probably not gonna walk into work and say, all you heathens, listen to me, I have a word for you. Like you're gonna be booed very quickly out of the room. Uh, And yet if we understand the gospel correctly this morning, all of us came into this world as heathens, sinners separated from the God of the universe by our sin. And yet the beautiful thing about the gospel is that while we were still heathens, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Man, that is a message that we should be willing and able and quick to declare in every place that we go. And then finally he says, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This has to do with us telling of what God has done, remembering the faithfulness of God. Tell stories of God's great grace. Tell stories of his faithfulness. Tell stories of answered prayer in our lives. And yet so often we forget the things we're supposed to remember and we remember the things we're supposed to forget, right? We get our eyes focused on you know, the trial that's in our way, or we get our eyes focused on the anxiety and it's like, God's so distant. He's not here. He can't hear my prayers. And it's like, man, God's been answering your prayers for years upon years upon years, days upon days. Remember the faithfulness of God. And even if he seems so distant, if he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, you have something to remember about his goodness and his faithfulness. Amen. May we never forget. First Chronicles 16, 12, this was a part of David's original prayer that didn't make the cut in Psalm 96, not sure why, but it says this, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Psalm 103, forget not all of the benefits of God. May we not forget the faithfulness and the goodness that we have seen in our days from our God, bringing us out of darkness into a place of abundance by his grace, by his mercy. Let's keep going. Number three, worshipers have a high view of God. All right, worshipers have a high view of God. Let me read, uh, starting in verse four, David says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
Uh, let's give a definition to worship this morning. Uh, worship is a response to truth, okay? A response to truth. David Platt says it this way. Worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. I love that. God's constantly giving us revelation, ultimately through his word, but we know from his word that God reveals himself in the sunrise, in the sunset, in the very new mercies and the air that we breathe every single morning. God is constantly in the rhythm of revealing himself to us, and it's our job to respond. Psalm 34, eight says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is constantly good. God is constantly revealing his goodness. God's goodness never wavers, never changes, but the challenge to you and I as worshipers this morning is that we would stop and notice that we would taste and see and that we would respond to the goodness of God in all things. And David, he starts diving in. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's trying to right size the majesty and the bigness and the holiness of God. And so he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We throw that word around all the time, right? Great. Like uh, my daughter, Reese, finishes a ballet recital and she runs up to me and I said, Reese, you did such a great job. Give me a hug, right? Or I go home and, you know, my wife put a wonderful meal on the table and we sit down as a family together and I'm like, babe, you knocked us out of the park. This looks really great this morning, right? But surely, like the God of the universe has a different category of greatness than we like to give to the things on this earth. And yet that is where idolatry can so easily creep in to our worship and to our lives. That's why David says, he goes on uh, in verse five, he says, but, or sorry, for, the, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Before that, he says, he's to be feared above all gods. You know, easily we can get our greatness uh, kind of mixed up. Louis Giglio says it this way. He says, if you were to follow a trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty, and at the end of that trail end up at a throne, whatever or whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Worship is a response to what we value the most. And so what would be great in your life today? You know, isn't it true that often we can get our eyes off of God or we follow that trail of time, talent, treasure, all these things, and we get to that throne and often we've taken God off of his throne and we've elevated maybe the promotion or the raise at work or, man, popularity. If I could just have this friend group at school or this friend group at work or, man, this peer group even in our church, right? Like we can elevate those things and before long, they are what is receiving our definition of greatness rather than the God of the universe, our time, our identity, to name a few. And David says, all of those things are worthless. He's like, what did the promotion do for you? What did you, you got a little bit of sat, earthly satisfaction by pursuing those things? Let me tell you what God did. And then David says, the Lord made the heavens. It's like the ultimate trump card. David's like, I don't care what your little G God has done for you, but my God, he made the very air that you are breathing right now. He made the very ground that you are walking on. Let's get our priorities in check and let's get our eyes focused back on the center of the universe, Jesus Christ, let's get him back in his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. And David says, all of those things, 
He says, lay them down. The Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. David's going for this like royal magnificence that surrounds our God. He's doing the best he can to describe God in all of his greatness, all of his glory, all of his majesty. And he says, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He's going for like the extremes, right? God is both strong and he's beautiful. Every characteristic in between God wholly fulfills perfectly. And he has invited you and I, even this morning, to drink from his never-ending well. So cast down your idols. They fall so short, the things of this world can't compare to the glory and the greatness of our God. So come and worship. Number four, worshipers have an offering to give. Worshipers have an offering to give. Before we read in Psalm 96, let me just first say, God doesn't need anything from us. Uh, The Bible says that our good deeds are as filthy rags to the holiness of God. The good things that we done have done, uh, they don't mean a whole lot to the holiness of God who's never done anything wrong. Sin can't be in his presence. And yet through Jesus, right, we can offer freely the best that we have and know that Jesus can offer them holy and acceptable to the God of the universe, okay? And so let's read what it says in Psalm 96 together in verse seven. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So if we zero in on this word ascribe, uh, it's to attribute something to someone. Uh, In different translations, it says, give unto the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. So in ascribing worth to God, we're actually giving God something, and yet it's not super tangible, right? David tells us basically, give to the Lord what is already rightfully his. Give unto the Lord what his word says about him. And he says first, ascribe to the Lord families of the peoples. I think that's a great challenge for us here this morning. Man, husbands and wives, moms and dads, let's make our households a place of worship. Dads, you are the, ultimately the worship leader of your household. Moms, man, you get an opportunity every single day as you have your children with you at the park or in church or at school or whenever you're putting your kids down for a nap. You have an opportunity to lead your children in worship. When a bird flies onto the bird feeder outside, you have an opportunity to point your children to Jesus Christ. Every opportunity is a chance to lead our family in worship. Man, let's make our household's a place of worship, but then what about our small groups, right? Uh, if you're not in a small group here, I love the way we do small groups at Harvest. It's a great way to grow in discipleship. Um, you know, we have fellowship there. We have discussion there. We have uh, mutual ministry and, and, and we have accountability going on. But man, let's not forget to make our small groups a place of worship. Let's not, for, let's not get so focused on the information intake And let's not forget that we need to respond accordingly to all the things we know about our God. Let's stop and worship in our small groups. And then certainly when we gather here 
individual families of God coming together as the greater family of God. It's all for his glory. And so we give to him what is rightfully his, the glory and the bigness and the majesty of his name. And he says, uh, you know, glory is the weightiness of God, the strength of God that David's talking about. That's where we draw our own strength from, right? So, so we're just try, trying to get the right view of all of these things, and that's what David's challenging us to do. We don't take the glory on our own shoulders, but the Bible says that God enthrones himself on the praise of his people. So rather than boasting in our own accomplishment or seeking our own glory, we build a throne of praise big enough that God's glory can come and rest upon here among us. And then David says, bring an offering when you come into his courts. So it gets a little more tangible there, right? Uh, not only are we worshiping him with our words, with our voices, with our hearts, but we bring our 10%. Uh, the, the tithe, the first fruits of what we have made in our labor so that we can bless the kingdom of God and the work of the church. Uh, we cheerfully and joyfully meet the needs of one another in the body of Christ. We joyfully meet the needs of those in need. Small groups are taking meals to one another. Uh, we're praying for one another. We're meeting financial needs. We're meeting uh, you know, needs whenever cars break down, all these different things. That's happening in and among our body, but may we do it cheerfully, may we do it joyfully, may we do it as an offering to our God. And here's the greatest thing I think David's trying to say to us this morning. We never have reason to appear before God empty-handed. Even when you are empty-handed by the world's standards, you can offer God your life and your best praise and know that through Jesus Christ, it's accepted by the God of the universe. That's a beautiful thing. Let's keep going. Number five, worshipers bow in the presence of holiness. Worshipers bow in the presence of holiness. I think it's funny. We've been talking about worship all morning, and that's the first time you see the word worship come up in this passage. Uh, you know, the Hebrew language and the Greek language, they actually have several different words. There's like seven or eight different words between those two languages for our one word, worship. So it tells you that there's a lot more to worship than just singing on Sunday or giving worth to God. You know, it, worship is seen all in different ways throughout the Bible. And this word in Psalm 96 Verse nine, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It says, tremble before him all the earth. That word worship is in the Hebrew language is shaka. Everybody say shaka. You gotta get like that sound in your throat. It's really fun, try it, shaka. Yeah, there you go, that's great, man. You guys are good at that. Um, so shaka means to lay prostrate with one's face touching the ground. It's not bow down, it's, it's lay on your face, with your face, touching the ground. This is like throne room worship, okay? This is Isaiah before the throne of God, and he's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is John bowing down with the saints at the throne of God. This is the angels covering their face as they hover around the throne of God because, you know, the, the majesty and the face-melting glory of God is exposed to them, okay? That's what shaka means. And we are invited into the splendor of his holiness and we are commanded, we are asked, we are invited to bow down in the presence of God and tremble before him. 
the magnificence, the joy, to bow in the splendid presence of Christ's otherness, both now in part and for eternity in fullness of joy. And you know, when we recognize our sinfulness in light of his holiness, the only proper response really is to get low. It's to get down. And when my face is on the ground, I can't see everything that's going on around me. You know, no longer am I focused on the anxiety that I've been facing, the trials of this life, my own success. And while all the rest of the world is out there chasing the small G gods, right? When they're out there chasing the promotion or their identity or looking for time or putting value in things that really don't matter, I'm just right here, eyes locked on Christ and the holiness and the majesty of God. He right-sizes my thinking. And you know, maybe it's from this position of great weakness that you and I can actually draw the most strength from the source of strength in all of the universe. When was the last time that you bowed in the presence of the holiness of God, that you trembled before God in the midst of whatever you're facing. There's this quote by this worship leader named Matt Papa that I read in a book years ago and I've carried it with me for a while. He says this about growing up in the church. He says, when you are in church every night of the week because that's what you do, your knowledge of God can become worse than demonic because you forfeit the ability to do the one virtuous thing that demons do, tremble. See, more knowledge of God is worthless without a greater worship of God. We can come to church until we're blue in the face, but if we don't do anything with what we're learning and what we're hearing from God's word, if we don't allow it to penetrate our hearts and our lives and our souls and allow it to pour out in praise to our great God, then what are we doing? Bowing in the presence of holiness fuels godly fear and it obliterates complacent faith. And yet there's still work to be done. You and I are still here. And while we are invited and called to get on our face in the holiness of God. If you think about Isaiah, in that place, he was convicted, he confessed, he was cleansed. He said, here am I, send me. And then he was commissioned to go, right? God doesn't leave us there. We'll get there someday. But it leads us to point number six this morning, and it's this, worshipers are bold in their witness to the nations. Worshipers are bold in their witness to the nations. Uh, our church is a part of uh, a collection of churches called the Great Commission Collective. You've heard this, you're hearing about it. Uh, I'm starting to see some of the newly developed content uh, that's coming out for church planting in the Great Commission Collective. And a statement that I keep seeing in that content is this, worship always leads to mission. I love that. Worship always leads to mission. Maybe you're familiar with the John Piper quote, uh, missions exist because worship doesn't, 
Like we're intentionally going to places where worship is not happening because they need to hear about the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and they need to become the kind of worshipers that God is seeking because God's looking for them all around the world, right? Uh, And so you think about Isaiah in the throne room of God, his worship in the throne room, his worship in the splendor of the holiness of God actually led him to a greater mission for God. And this is why we're passionate about planting vertical churches. This is why we're passionate about going to Liberia and Hungary and Belize and praying for missionaries and commissioning missionaries uh, because God doesn't call all of us to go uh, to a faraway country, but he does call all of us to get out of this place and take it to the streets, take it to our jobs, take it to the world around us that is in need of the saving grace and mercy of our God. And so look what David says uh, in verse 10. Uh, He says, say among the nations, judging by the exclamation points, I don't think he was very quiet about it. He says, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. David here, uh, with passion in his heart and boldness in his mouth, wants the nations to know three things. Jesus reigns. It's not going to change ever and that God is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Man, that should fuel a fire in your heart if you're a Christian here today. God's coming back, and there are people who don't know the saving grace of Jesus. What are we doing wasting our time thinking about the things of this world? They are worthless. May we get our eyes back on God, back on Jesus, and may that worship explode in our hearts and send us to the streets where we can't help but proclaim the message of the gospel. Amen. And people are going to say, well, God can't judge me. I've been a good person. I've done lots of great things for Jesus. I've been a good follower. I've been nice to people. I've, I've gone to church my whole entire life. I love that David says he'll judge the people with equity. When God returns, he's going to be fair, he's going to be impartial, but only those who have called upon the name of Jesus will be saved. The Bible says it this way, uh, if you confess with your mouth and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead, you can and will be saved. That invitation is available to everybody in this room this morning. If you're here today and you're just checking church out, you're trying to find answers, uh, you're just checking out Christianity from a distance, that's a great place to start. That's a great thing to check out. We're so blessed that you're here this morning. But man, let me just tell you, God is coming back. It's not going to change. And he's invited you in. He's done the work for you. You don't have to continue striving to do all of the work to try to earn favor with God. God says, I've already paid for your sin. I've already paid for your wandering. I've already paid for the things that you can't seem to get over by my son, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, but he became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. If that's you here this morning, my encouragement to you is don't rush past if the Lord Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart, if he's leading you, asking you, drawing you to confess, to repent, to turn from this world and follow Jesus. Find someone after this service up here at the front and let's pray and let's make Jesus the center of your life and let's worship him for all of eternity together. 
But for all of us who have put our trust and hope and faith in Jesus Christ, it leads us to point number seven this morning, and it's this. Worshipers have an unashamed adoration as they await Christ's return. Worshipers have an unashamed adoration as they await Christ's return. Let's read um, Psalm 96, verse 11. David writes, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. See, real worshipers long for the day when Christ will return and sin will be no more. David said, one thing I ask, one thing I desire more than anything in all of the world, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, when you're living for that day, you get to join in the song that is already happening all around us. Creation is literally praising the name of its creator. When the ocean crashes, when the sea roars, it's worshiping God. When the trees blow their branches side to side, they're waving their hands to the glory of God. It says that even the rocks will cry out and praise God, and yet God hasn't returned yet because he's waiting for more of you. He's waiting for more of us. He gave his son to save sinful, heathen people of the world. He gave his son so that we might be brought back into a right standing with him so that we might get our eyes off of the things of this world and onto him, the creator of the universe. So if that message is burning in your heart this morning, if exalting Christ is burning in your heart this morning, let it fuel a mission to tell of the salvation of God day after day, that all the earth would shout his praise. Come on, stand to your feet with me. Let's be a people who value Christ above all things, whose lives are marked by an unashamed adoration in all things. Come on, let's sing together. It's your breath in our lungs.